The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Walsh. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. Our guest today is Oliver Mitchell, who is founding partner of Autonomy Ventures and syndicated writer and host of local tech events in New York. So, hi, Oliver. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, good afternoon. It's really great to be here today. Yeah, Oliver, thank you. And welcome to our podcast today. So we'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and to tell them a little bit about your background and your current role at Autonomy Ventures. Sure. So I've been doing startups for over 20 years. I've built companies, I've sold companies, I've had a number of life lessons along the way. And for the past 10 plus years, I've been investing in the autonomy space, in particular robotics. And I've seen over the past decade how I've been an outlier out there within the venture capital space and the angel investing space saying, you know, automation is moving a lot quicker than anybody thought. And we're not just talking about big industrial robots in Detroit, but we're talking about affecting every single vertical, every single industry, whether it's warehousing, manufacturing, transportation, city infrastructure, remote sensing, medical data analytics, to how we live our everyday lives. And so it's a very exciting standpoint here within both the private investment space and also the social space, because we're really at a precipice of change. And how we manage that change determines if we fall down the cliff or we're able to build a bridge and get to the other side. So I think a lot about those issues. Autonomy Ventures is a early stage venture capital firm. We focus on seed investment in robotics, in smart mobility, in remote sensing and drone, and also in machine learning technologies. On my free time, I write weekly syndicated articles that can be featured in the RoboHub community, as well as the Robot Report and my blog, which is whimsically called The Robot Rabbi. And at the same time, quarterly we host events. And our next one for your listeners is on June 13th, where we'll be interviewing presidential candidate Andrew Yang, who is running on a universal basic income platform for the Democratic Party. We work Penn Station, and we invite your listeners to go to meetup forward slash robot lab to sign up. Well, great. Well, that's definitely a lot of activity. And that was actually part of the reason why we reached out to you to begin with. All this activity in the space, your investment, your background, as well as your current activities, put together our Big Ask VC AI edition event in New York. As a matter of fact, you were one of the panelists for our AI Investor Forum event in New York in May, along with many other leading investors in AI and AI-focused startups. So you had a lot to say and a lot to contribute there. So I'm wondering if you could share some of your insights from that event about the current climate for investing in AI-centric startups and maybe perhaps some of the notable things you're saying. Absolutely. I want to say that you guys did an amazing job in organizing a really thoughtful event that brought together some really quality startups that I spoke to afterwards that I'm still engaged with and esteemed panelists who are probably much smarter than I am. I think that, you know, your event was very focused on artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence is a very broad, in my opinion, nebulous word and world for that matter as well. And it, it means different things to different people. If you're at Deloitte or at another consulting firm, you're probably looking at it from an RPA standpoint and you're looking at how can you 
manage workflow better and implement AI technologies on the workflow. If you're at a hardware company, you might be looking at unstructured environments and how you can use deep learning technologies to better manage machines or fleets of cars out in the, in the world. And the most difficult thing is to manage people because we're unpredictable. While, you know, Fox on a conveyor belt, you know, will come at certain reps, you know, per minute and in certain frequencies, human beings crossing the streets on Madison Avenue and 44th Street, they're unpredictable. They're not going to look at the walk sign. They're going to just cross if they think it's safe. And many times it's not safe. And so I think that when looking at this space, it's very important for startup entrepreneurs and investors to be very clear of what they're doing. You know, often I speak to entrepreneurs, really brilliant minds that get caught up too much in the technology details and miss what are they doing? What problem are they solving in this complicated world that we live in? And is this problem something that people are going to pay for? And that's really critical. I think as investors in this space, we get way too excited about certain aspects of the technology. They create a big bubble in the hyperbole. And we don't think enough about, you know, how we can help those entrepreneurs you sort of cross that chasm to get better growth and make value investment plays. So within my portfolio that I've had about eight exits, and I think the most successful exits have been the ones that have really targeted specific problems within the industry, whether that's you know, solving cancer through ultrasound technologies using AI or exoskeleton for the military, for the medical space, as well as for the able-bodied industrial space. And so I think this is really important when we look at these technologies to be very specific about creating and investing in a value proposition. Yeah, that's very interesting. So can you talk to us about some of the recent investments that you yourself have made in AI companies and what made these companies stand out to you? Sure. I'll talk about two, one in the hardware space and one in the software space within mobility. In the hardware space, Carbon Robotics, which is a robotic arm, and it's a low-cost robotic arm for mid-tier manufacturing. And, you know, when you think about robots, your mind is often brought back to, you know, the 1980s and and all those videos of those big yellow industrial robots that are about five times the size of the cars that they're manufacturing. And, And in these factories, you know, there are no lights, there are no windows, and there's very few humans managing hundreds of machines. In this day and age, there's other robots, and they're called cobots or collaborative robots. And these are enabling not those big factories, but mid-sized factories that service, you know, tier ones and OEMs that build cars, that build machines, that, to better enable and augment their employees. So the mundane and tedious tasks like, you know, washing, tooling outputs and cleaning washers can be done automatically. And rather than one person working on one line, they can now manage five lines of machines. And so Carbon Robotics does a low-cost, small robotic arm, and they leverage artificial intelligence and computer vision software to enable it to be done easily with someone without a computer science degree. Typically, in the cobot space, the firmware is very complicated. And so there are companies like Rethink Robotics that you know enables you to program it, program the arm by moving the arm into repeated functions. But if you go outside parameters of their programming interface like that, you're going to have to hire somebody that is going to be a huge hourly wage or put someone on staff that's going to be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars who's going to be your chief robotic officer. And then there's Universal Robotics, which probably makes the easiest firmware to use, but you 
still need some basic engineering expertise to be able to manage it. But carbon robotics does it as simple as using your iPad or your iPhone. And so you can look at that computer board where you want the screws drilled into, and you can just put in, you know, screw one, screw two, screw three, screw four, and just do it pictorially, and the robot will respond accordingly. And so, you know, we really like people that, you know, leverage hardware, but their real secret sauce is in the software. And so Carbon is a very young company. It's based out in San Francisco came out of the Hacks Accelerator, and they're just beginning some very exciting pilots with some mid-tier manufacturers. The other company I want to mention is Aurora Labs out of Israel. About a third of our deals come from Israel. It's a point of background. A third come from here on the East Coast, where we see New York in the center of this amazing academic corridor that goes from New England down to D.C., out to Pittsburgh, and then a third from the Valley. And in Israel, we invest in Aurora Labs that does over-the-air software updates for connected and eventually autonomous cars. And that, you know, the Tesla car series enables cloud-based updates, but typically most car manufacturers, it's done through an OBD2 connector. And that requires people to go into the dealership. In fact, most of the expensive recalls have been firmware or software recalls where that bringing your car into the dealership is financed by the manufacturer. It's, it's costed billions of dollars in recall. However, you know, typically a car, even a connected GM car like mine that has OnStar, cannot work with the cloud because they have ECUs. And these ECUs, you know, don't have a lot of processing power. And so what Aurora Labs does is it only uses less than 2% of the processing power on the ECU to be able to do over-the-air software updates. And so rather than people driving into their dealership and being out of pocket without a car, or rather than GM having to spend billions of dollars to get people to go to the dealership to get that critical update that could have people's lives on the line, Aurora Labs is able to do it over the air. And that's really critical for the whole ecosystem of connected and eventually autonomous cars. And so at every level, from level two to eventually level five. And so we like people that solve mission-critical problems, and it's really important when they solve mission-critical problems that are tied to the P&L, that are tied to the revenues. I tell this to entrepreneurs all the time. You know, just because you got a pilot with one of these big Fortune 500 companies, don't get too excited because they're doing pilots with everybody out there today. The real key is tying to how they make money. If you're critical to how they make money or saving money, then you've got a winning idea. Well, great. These are all extremely great ideas. And anyway, we obviously hope that these move forward. You know, when you were talking about the Cobot, for example, you know, we'd obviously chatted with and uh, interacted with the Rethink Robotics a bit. And Rodney Brooks, I know he's been very involved in that. So it's really great to hear how a lot of folks are thinking about bringing these class of robots to a much wider adoption base. I think that's pretty cool. And of course, yeah. Rodney Brooks, or... sorry to interrupt, but mm-hmm. Rodney sure. Brooks is more than just a little bit involved. He's the godfather of modern robotics. His work at MIT in the 1980s and 1990s and eventually iRobot, you know, led the way for technologies that we do today. I have a great respect for Rodney. Just didn't want to say Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and you're right. This is really the most recent iteration of what he's doing. I don't want to make this podcast too much about Rodney Brooks, but of course, he was instrumental with, with uh, robotics, uh, iRobot, and of course, uh, the Roomba. And, and he was actually my academic advisor when I was at MIT. So I have some, some direct interaction with him, which is great. A lot of these startups hopefully will become, you know, significant companies in their own right, or you become part of significant companies. You know, you know how exits are. 
So I know in your blog, you mentioned earlier, one of the things that you do is you talk a lot about robotics. And we're going to link to that blog and some of the other contributed writing here in our show notes. And it would be interesting to get your thoughts on how the perception and adoption of AI, in particular robotics, has changed in the recent years. We Actually, it's interesting you mentioned that we were talking about Rodney Brooks. Yeah, clearly we've been working on this for decades. But, you know, obviously we have a little bit of a resurgence of interest in AI. So would be an idea to get your feedback on and how you see the perception and adoption has changed in the recent years and how you see the future of work changing. Yeah, there's a lot there. And I think Rodney is a great springboard because he's really, when you think about the continuum in the history of AI, he's right smack there in the middle. I mean, I, clearly he was not there in the, in the 1950s at CMU, but it, you know, his work regard, in mechatronics led the way to cobots and many sophisticated robots that, that, that were seeing deployed out in the marketplace. And I think, you know, when you think about robotics, there's a lots of different sciences that it encompasses, right? Mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, software engineering, and a lot of things have to work in sync. And a few miles from Rethink, you know, there's Boston Dynamics. And Boston Dynamics, you know, has been pushing the envelope on robotics, right? I mean, just speaking of the Robotics Summit, and they had Mark Riddell from Boston Dynamics, and he had Spot Mini there. You know, the Black Mirror-inspired robotic dock with an arm on it on its back. And what's interesting there, just a little thing, is that, you know, Big Dog, which really was in the early 2000s, the, these amazing videos of this robotic dog that would go through snow and ice and up climb mountains, ran on diesel. And it was extremely loud. And he would do these, you know, these DARPA projects to prove out the elements and, and prove out the proposition of robotics in the military for a Department of Defense for robotic haulers and robotic mules. But Spot Mini is completely electric. And that's pretty amazing because, you know, many things, in addition to mechanical and electrical and software engineering, you have to think about energy consumption in robotics. How are you going to move? And what happens if you don't move? How are you going to maximize energy? How are the springs in you know, quadruped going to conserve energy so you can get the most out of it? How are you going to charge without degrading you know, the battery? What is the consumption and the material science of the lithium and the phosphates? And so my point is there's so much that goes involved in creating a robot. And maybe even a robot's not the right term for it. And so I think when people think about AI, they see it as a be-all or end-all regarding emerging technology. AI is a tool within a larger toolbox that, if deployed properly, can make the functionality of what you want to accomplish successful. And very narrow, and I'm specifically saying that very narrowly, you know, to think through AI and say, you know, we're building a human being and that human being is going to walk and talk and tie shoes that my twin boys have been able to do, you know, for seven years. You know, a robot can't tie shoes right now. So I don't think that that is healthy for the ecosystem. That's my point, is to say, to focus on, you know, a Hollywood vision of artificial intelligence. Because when you do that, you skip over the important things. And I think that, you know, in innovation, bring together those sciences that I spoke about before and targeting specific problems, whether those are problems in the factory, in the warehouse, within urban transportation, within energy consumption, within renewable energy, and using machine learning or deep learning software 
to be able to better process immense amount of data accurately and successfully for that specific task, that is really remarkable. So while AlphaGo can be, you know, a Go master, that's exciting, but that's just proving out that for a specific strategy-oriented task, it can win. But still, it cannot tie shoes as much as a five-year-old can. And I think that's a bad differentiation because I guess I've been doing this a while. I remember when Big Blue beat Kasparov you know, in the great chess maths in 1997, and everyone thought that in a few years, we're going to have computers smarter than humans. Well, we still don't have that. We have great chess boards, you know, that you can play against, but we don't have computers smarter than humans. So I just want to be careful in, in managing expectations there. You did. I didn't you answer, did answer the our future question. work. No, I didn't answer okay. the future work question. So uh, I can answer later or I can answer now. I think managing these expectations ties to the future of work. Yeah, go ahead well, and answer well, well, it now. Yeah. Okay. So I think that, you know, and there's greater, you know, social science professors and economists who think more heavily and write more heavily about this than, than I do. I'm a business person. But I think the future work is a very important conversation. I think that, you know, as an investors in innovation, my goal is that my investments will create a positive change for the world. And maybe I make a little money too. And so I think that with that goal in mind, creating a positive change, it's important to be very real about the friction that will happen implementing these technologies, these targeted technologies that at many times will offset human labor. You know, let's just take it. Everyone's excited by autonomous cars, right? So there's 2 million livery drivers out there. So if we're going to have autonomous taxis, you know, maybe a million of them could be out of work, autonomous shuttle. What are we doing today with those million people? Are we saying we're going to write those people off? Or are we working with policymakers and great thinkers, you know, to create positive change? And what I'm specifically saying is, are we thinking about upscaling and rescaling labor? And I think that's really important. I'm involved in New York State with the AI Roundtable, which is led by Assemblyman uh, Clyde Vannel, who's a very progressive and thoughtful politician. And we really think about the future of labor and we think about upscaling and rescaling. And if you think about other countries, smaller but very successful countries like Germany and Sweden, they really think about technology, even the labor unions there, as a competitive advantage because they're very focused on rescaling and upscaling and creating the social safety net that protects labor, whether that's healthcare, whether that's pensions. And they're trying to partner with industry on that. Singapore is another great example. They actually have federal agencies in Singapore. Obviously, it's a smaller country with a different government structure. They have agencies that are focused on future work on rescaling and upscaling. And in this country, according to World Economic Forum, that 65% of employers are focused on retraining, but 80% of job openings are not being filled because they don't have the right qualified candidate. So clearly, there's you know a disparity between what we're doing as far as training and what we're looking for. And we got to close that gap a little bit. 
Yeah, and it's interesting you bring that up because we actually wrote an article about that, about how AI is not a job killer, but it can be a job category killer. So we need to be mindful of that because while it can create new jobs, it also does, you know, take away some other jobs. So upskilling, retraining, making sure that future generations are trained in certain things and not others is really important. Right. And I'll tell you, I give a keynote to exactly what you're saying about the robotics industry. Being a VC, you know, we have to get investment from family offices and advisors and funds and stuff. And so I go through the industry, the robotics industry, go through every vertical, what's happening today as far as automation. And I always end it with a map of the weather report. And I say that if, if you're watching TV, the local news, and you're seeing Mr. G say it's going to rain tomorrow, most likely you're going to leave your house with an umbrella. Well, you know, we all know that these technologies are moving at such a fast pace. But we know that there's going to be such an upheaval of change. But what are we doing to prepare? And what's that umbrella? What's that safety net? And it's really thinking about rescaling and upscaling. And I think, you know, there's a small window of opportunity where industry can really take the lead on it and partner, especially on the local government level. I'm leaving the federal government out for right now. And so I think that that's where it could be done very successfully. And as you said, there'll be this major sort of job shift where maybe some of those livery drivers are no longer in the cab, but they're monitoring fleets of cabs. And so that's what could be very exciting. And that's, you know, where we could help, you know, create that positive change. And many people get very cynical. They say, well, look at ATM. And I used to be in the ATM business. I sold my company to American Express. And the ATM, because University of London Economics studied about ATMs and saying that, you know, ATMs, everyone thought would kill bank branches. And today there's more bank branches than ever. But a, people don't realize the first ATM was put in manufacturer's handover in 1969, hit a high point in the 1990s, and there's more bank branches. And yes, People are going to their tellers not for cash management services, but for a variety of financial service products. And they're now customer service agents. But the number of decades of change was much greater than it is that we're seeing within AI and automation because this is moving, you know, very fast down the hill. It's not moving at a steady pace. Yeah, I agree. And I think sometimes that's maybe what scares people because it's the unknown and they're not sure, you know, how fast it's going to change and where exactly the landscape is shifting, but we're definitely keeping an eye on it. So switching gears, I want to talk about bias in AI. At Cognolytica and on this podcast as well, we do talk a lot about bias in AI and humans have bias. And so that's transmitted either knowingly or unknowingly into, you know, data training for AI systems. Can you talk to us about how AI bias that you have seen And if you have any ideas for how we can overcome the bias in AI. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I wrote an article about it. I believe we got connected because I quoted you, Kathleen, (laughs) and one of your (laughs) podcasts. So for your listeners, you know, you should listen up to Kathleen because she is a resident expert on the subject. And AI bias is, I think, one of the more pressing issues of our time. The future of work might be a few years out. AI bias is happening today. And so when I came back from speaking in South by Southwest, a big theme was AI bias at South by. There were many panels, there were keynotes on bias. And, you know, I felt necessary to write an article about it. And in my research, I think the most startling thing, which you're familiar with, is a ProPublica article about a criminal justice software program where 15 states have deployed to rate criminals' propensity to recommit crimes. And before I tell you the outcome, I just want to state, you know, that 
people, human beings, are very willing and able, even if they say they won't, but once they turn on the machine to trust computers. I mean, you just have to watch the Tempe police video of the safety driver, how you know easily humans are willing to hand over the wheel in a variety of different ways to machines. So these criminal justice departments in these 15 states had the best intention. They wanted to get rid of all the paperwork, get rid of all the red tape. We can be doing this a lot more efficiently and a lot more economically by deploying software. But what they didn't know and what ProPublica uncovered is that the software rated African-Americans higher to recommit crimes than Caucasians for similar crimes. And what is still unknown is what is that training data? What are the factors that are going into that software determining that? Because the company said, no, 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 it's a, you know, that's not what our, our software does. But we, so release your training data. No, that's our black box. That's our secret sauce. If we release that, then we're going to have competitors and everyone's going to copy what we do. Our algorithms are going to be out there. So this is something that is a really scary premise. And if you're a law-abiding citizen, it also applies to you. You know, there's been many instances with, you know, simple HR, AI software that if your name is Julie, you're put to the bottom of the pile. But if your name is Jonathan with the same resume, you're at the top of the pile. Or what happens with all that clinical diagnostic software that's being used in emergency rooms? And you bring in your grandfather who is suffering from pneumonia. And he's been in, in and out of the emergency room for the past few years. And software makes it, you know, rational calculation that his statistical rate of surviving is very low and that, you know, we got to triage this. We're going to send him to the palliative care department. The clinical software is making the determination what kind of care your grandfather will get, not you. It's saying that you should speak to the palliative care. Palliative care is, you know, dying with dignity, which is a beautiful thing. But that decision should not be made by a unemotional machine. It should be made by the caregivers. No one should take that decision away. And so my point is, is this often when people hear these things or read a New York Times article about criminal justice software, they'll say, well, I'm a law-abiding system. That doesn't affect me. Well, it affects everybody because AI bias, as you said, all human beings have natural biases. I might not like the color blue. That's a bias. But what happens when that bias translates into people or in how we live our lives? And as we see that in the political atmosphere, that, you know, bias weighs heavily on the voting public. And likewise, in, you know, the data science room, most classic horrific example was Google, very progressive company that developed uh, the Google image software. And that when you put a picture of a black man in there, it came back and identified that picture as a gorilla. Who was in the room who, who trained that software? Why didn't they think to, to train the software for all types of skin colors? So then it gets into how we hire and the diversity of how we hire and why that's important. Just getting diversity of not just of different types of people, but different types of thought. And I think that what, you know, a glaring thing that we're seeing outside of AI, but in the Me Too movement, and especially being a male, is that we're unfamiliar with our own biases and our own slighting of the opposite sex. If anything positive that has come out of this is that people are becoming much more mindful in how they interact with each other. Not just what you can and cannot say, but, you know, allowing everybody equal time to talk and share their differences of opinion. Mm -hmm.
Well, so this is definitely very important. I know that in order for AI systems to, in general to be used and be valuable, they have to be trusted, right? So, you know, a lot of our perspective is like, well, you're not going to trust systems that, you know, have a decision-making that's buried in biases that are ultimately human problems, not, you know, computer failings. So it comes down to these systems won't be as useful as much as they're trusted. So Yeah, I would, say, I would say maybe I'm a little, too much of a cynical New Yorker, but I would say that people don't care. I would mm-hmm. say that people are too willing to trust machines and not do their homework on the training data. And this is going to be the sort of liberal Upper West Sider they're speaking, is that there's going to need to be in the next decade a technology czar, like we have a drug czar, like we have other departments at the federal level. That's going to be thinking about the future work, but also AI bias. And we're going to have to create a monitoring department where people can safely release their algorithms to be able to be reviewed and create protocols for ongoing implementation, especially if they're being deployed at the federal government level, making life critical decisions. And so this is something that will require government to be a mitigator of within regulation. And, you know, nowadays, with all the you guys are in D.C., you know, all the talk in Washington, regulation is somehow has got a very bad word. Well, I'm going to be, you know, controversial to say that sometimes regulation is a good thing. And sometimes even for innovation, regulation is a good thing because you know how to, you know, what you're designing for. There's been many startups that became very successful because of the Affordable Care Act because of creating software that limits re-emission rates and better trains people on how to adhere to their medical regime so they don't get go back into the emergency room. So I don't think that people should skirt around re- regulation. And I think, you know, it's something that you just said is that it's going to be here for a long while and, and it, government will be taking a lead, maybe not in the next four years, but we'll see, I think, within the next decade. Well, great. Well, this is actually a, a good transition. And we only have one final question for you on this. I know you really shared a lot of pretty amazing insight here and some real detail, but I'll figure I'll ask you anyways. Uh, and that is that as a final note, you know, what do you believe the future of AI is? And, you know, it's application to corporations and beyond, just sort of to the extent that I know you've already shared some of your vision for the future, but maybe sort of in a more general note, you know, where do you see all this going? <laughs> so I think that AI has an immense amount of promise. And I put robots in there at the remote sensing. I think that we are just at the beginning of an amazing future. And I think that we have the ability to create amazing positive social change. I think that autonomous cars could bring down accidents as close as possible zero. I think that, you know, people's commute time is no longer important. And so urban density and urban overpopulation can be mitigated by people living further away because they could just sit back in the car and do work as they're going to the office, no matter where they live. I think that, you know, we have the ability to solve horrific diseases by computing immense amount of data to determine, you know, what genes act in a certain way and what proteins and enzymes are able to fight these viruses or bacteria or these parasites. Nanoscience and the ability to target therapeutic delivery right to the heart of a cancer cell to determine cancer markers even before they're formed. This is amazing. We have ability to create new opportunities across the whole economic chasm. You know, we have the ability to bring in minority communities and low-income communities into the mix. I always encourage people that host accelerators and incubators to open their doors, allow people to be flies on the wall, 
Let them go to demo days, even though they're not investors. So they can be aware of what is coming down the mix. So when they go to college or when, they, when they're when they thinking about retraining or going back to school to learn a new skill, they're aware of what is going to be in the future. And so this future is extremely bright. If you think about our own short lifetimes, what has happened in a short amount of time, the ability to, to unravel the entire genome. We have so much information at our fingertips. And information is really the power for social good. And as stewards of that information, we have to decide, you know, how we're going to steer the ship and not get greedy and not get too proprietary, but really to have much more of an open discourse to protect all people, especially the most vulnerable, to be able to leverage this information to live a better life. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think on that note, we want to thank you. These were some great contributions. As mentioned, we're going to definitely share with our audience some of the things that we talked about here. And I just wanted to thank you first and foremost for joining us on this podcast. My pleasure, Ronald and Kathleen. Thank you for having this podcast, for all the work that you guys do, and uh, really taking a leadership role in artificial intelligence. Thank you, Oliver. And thank you for joining us today as well. And listeners, as always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes. And thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Fiverr.com. Fiverr is a marketplace for creative and digital freelance services. And in fact, I use Fiverr for quite a lot of the things that we do here at Cognolytica and AI Today, including the editing of this podcast, the generation of transcripts, and more. I definitely encourage you to take a look at using Fiverr for your creative and digital needs today. And I have a special offer for you today. Use the promo code AI Today for 15% off your first purchase on Fiverr.com. Offer valid until December 31st, 2018. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolytica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright 2018 by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.